All right, if you have your Bible there, open up please to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'd like to read a section here from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 as we begin our time in church history this morning. Now you see that our subject here for today is Jerusalem versus Athens. And that's really tying in last week together with this week because we took a look into the life and writings of Tertullian. One of the major things we focused on in studying that person was how he had rejected everything that was from Greek philosophy, from the, you call it maybe secular learning of his time, and that he just wanted to have just the teachings of the church unmixed with any worldly thinking. And that made me want to like Tertullian. And it's like, wow, this is good. I, I appreciate the emphasis on the sufficiency of God's word, even though Tertullian wasn't as much focused on the sufficiency of God's word as, as I think maybe church tradition or church teaching. But I liked the fact that he was not trying to mix together the thinking of the world, the age that he lived in, together with Scripture. And yet we found that Tertullian was rather disappointing as an early church teacher because he just did not talk about and apparently did not seem to understand the doctrines of grace. And that he was so rigorous in his understanding of repentance that he really didn't place any emphasis on faith in the blood of Jesus Christ as the power of salvation as the New Testament so clearly and and wonderfully does. And so this question of what does Jerusalem have to do with Athens is a question that was vexing the early church and there would be different opinions, different positions taken as to whether or not you could take the philosophies of the Greeks and find any concord together with the teachings of the Bible. And so Tertullian's famous line was, was, what does Jerusalem have to do with Athens? And, of course, Tertullian's response would have been, nothing. We don't need anything from Athens. We don't need anything from Plato, Aristotle, or Socrates. We're not going to mix together Greek philosophy with the teachings of the church. Now, this morning, we're going to take a look at the other side of that answer. Actually, you could say we're going to look at a continuum on that because I think we're going to find one person who does a good job of properly balancing interacting with the ideas of the Greek philosophers and showing where they are in accord and where they differ with Christianity, and another person then who goes too far the other way. So you've got Tertullian on one side who's just like, nope, I don't care about the philosophers at all. And then you've got Clement of Alexandria, who I particularly like, and I think he does a good job of interacting with the philosophy and yet remaining largely biblical. And then you've got Origen who is so much influenced by the Greek philosophy that he tends to to lose Christian teaching at times and and make compromises that are undermining the faith. So when it comes to the question of Jerusalem versus Athens, you have a spectrum of different opinions. And on the one side, Tertullian, I admire him, but in some ways he, he missed it. Clement seems to be a nice, happy median, and Origen seems to be too far the other way. But that's why I brought you here to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, because I wanted to get some scriptural thinking on this subject to start us off with. And here you're going to see that Paul rejects the philosophy of this world and is not seeking to incorporate Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, or Pythagoras, or any of the ancient Greek philosophers into what has been revealed through special revelation. And this is what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, 
I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, wisdom is another word for philosophy, right? A philosopher is a lover of wisdom. The world didn't know God through wisdom is what Paul says, what the Holy Spirit says. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. So you can see why I was attracted to Tertullian in being opposed to Jerusalem and the wisdom of this age, the wisdom of this world, when you see how strongly Scripture comes out against the wisdom of this age and the wisdom of this world. Sadly, Tertullian had other problems, and so you see how everything is a mixed bag. You can't just be a one-issue voter when it comes to giving a thumbs-up or a thumbs-down on people in church history. You might like a person in church history because of a certain stand they take. Or you might dislike a person in church history because of a certain stand that they would take. But that's not being fair to the person, because that's just judging them based upon one aspect. And so you have to look at the total picture and weigh it all together to find out how faithful was this person to the Lord. And we as Christians, we tend to kind of become one-issue voters sometimes, because sadly, the church is so divided And we tend to try to draw followers after ourselves and our group based upon our issue. It's like, hey, we're the only group that has this right. And this is a super important issue, so you've got to come to our group. Those other groups, nope, they don't have this right. We got that right. And so we tend to become the one-issue Christians because we're promoting ourselves on that one issue. I grew up in a great Bible-teaching church, but one of my criticisms of the church is that they were so focused on dispensationalism that they would judge everything by how faithful it was to premillennial dispensationalism, you know, a thousand-year future kingdom and a pre-tribulational rapture, and if you had that right, you were great, and if you didn't have that right, you were terrible, and that was a simplistic way of judging Christians. Now, do I believe that premillennial dispensationalism is important? Yes. Do I believe that it's the main thing by which we should judge faithfulness to Christ? No. And so we have to be careful that we don't make an issue our issue in order to say, hey, you know, we, we got this. So that's Tertullian. We don't like him because of his lack of gospel, which is a big problem. We do like him because he's rejecting Jerusalem and worldly philosophy. But today I want to talk about the Alexandrian school. So The representative of the Alexandrian school of thought that I want to present to you here at the beginning, you see, is Philo. Now, Philo was not a Christian. Philo was a Jewish philosopher. 
And so he's what we call a Hellenistic Jew. A Hellenistic Jew is a Jew who was very much acclimated to the culture of the Greeks. The Greeks are called Hellens. And so a Hellenistic Jew is a Greek Jew. He's very Greek in his thinking and in his lifestyle. And he's living in Alexandria, which is a very Greek city of higher learning. Athens and Alexandria in the ancient world were the centers of intellectual thought. Alexandria had the biggest library in the ancient world. And you know that where you have big libraries, you end up having lots of scholars. And where lots of scholars are, you get lots of discussion and debate and writing and, and all of that type of thing. And that was Alexandria in the ancient world. It was the center of the intellectual East. Athens being you know, a little bit more part of Western Europe, well, kind of in between. But anyway, Philo was born and raised in Alexandria, and his desire was to take Judaism and to mix it with Greek philosophy in a way that would be appealing to the intellectual world in which he lived. All right? And so what he had to do with the Bible in order to make it appealing to the intellectual climate of his day was to allegorize it. There's a lot of passages in the Old Testament that were repugnant to the Greek philosophers. And so the Jews had a hard time winning a lot of converts from Greek philosophers because the Greek philosophers would read the Hebrew Old Testament and they'd be thinking that it was just kind of, oh, base and low and, and you know, talks about God having a hand and changing his mind. And, and the Greek philosophers said, you know, God doesn't have an arm like the Bible says he has an arm and he doesn't change his mind like the Bible talks about. And, and you know, maybe he's not a God of wrath like the Bible talks about. And so there were a lot of things about the Jewish Bible that the Greek philosophers didn't like. And so Philo, he's like, well, you know, those passages in the Old Testament that you Greek philosophers don't like, you're not supposed to understand them literally. You're supposed to understand them spiritually, metaphorically, allegorically. And so he would allegorize the Old Testament in order to make it fit with the prevalent academic thought of his day. He would take a Jewish exegesis of Scripture and Stoic philosophy and try to find a middle ground between them. And so... Philo, I have a quote from him up here that I used in a sermon a couple years ago. And so I was going through my, my old sermon notes and I was like, oh yeah, I have a slide from Philo. And I like this quote from Philo because it describes perfectly the anarchist, the troublemaker, the person in our day who wants to you know, have rallies for this cause and that cause and doesn't know what he's talking about. The social agitator. Right? So here Philo describes the social agitator as the worthless man whose life is one long restlessness. He haunts marketplaces, theaters, law courts, council halls, assemblies, and every group and gathering of men. His tongue he lets loose for unmeasured, endless, indiscriminate talk, bringing chaos and confusion into everything, mixing true with false, fit with unfit, public with private, holy with profane, sensible with absurd, because he has not been trained to that silence which in season is most Excellent, which a lot of people that you know, cannot discern between true and false and what is holy and profane would, would learn to be silent. That would be good. They had that problem back then, just like we have that problem today. The more things change, the more they stay the same. So Philo was very critical of most of Judaism, and he called like the Pharisees in their school the sophists of literalness. You know what a sophist is? A sophist is somebody who pretends to be a wise man, like a philosopher, but who is really not wise and who's just selling his stuff. That's a sophist. 
And so he called them the sophists of literalness. They were not really philosophers, not really wise people, because they understood the Old Testament literally. Ooh, how disgusting. Now, Philo didn't get much following in his time or afterwards. There's not been a large stream of Judaism that followed in the wake of Philo's allegorizing of Scripture. It didn't take off very well. Instead, rabbinic Judaism continued to be strong, and that was the mainstream of Judaism. However, Philo's type of handling of the Old Testament proved to be very influential among Christian theologians in the early church, especially in Alexandria. So we develop an Alexandrian school of thought when it comes to interpreting the Old Testament that is very much like what Philo pioneered, there in the early first century. You see, he was born before Christ, but uh, died during the time that the missionary journeys of Paul would have been going on. And so he's kind of a pioneer in allegorizing the Old Testament. And that allegorizing of the Old Testament, where you don't read it literally, you find the hidden spiritual meaning that is there in the text that sounds more scholarly. The school of Alexandria, the Christian school there, has a lot of roots in Philo's approach because it's in the same cultural milieu. Now, with Philo in mind, then, I want to go on and introduce you to the Alexandrian school. And first of all, I want to talk about Clement of Alexandria. Now, very early in our study of church history, we talked about Clement of Rome. And so this is a totally different Clement. He's living 100 years after the Clement of Rome, writing 100 years later. And he's in a different part of the empire. Rome in Italy, Alexandria in Egypt. And Clement of Alexandria, he was a convert to Christianity. His parents were pagans. Pagans meaning they worshipped the Greek and Roman gods, or maybe even some Egyptian worship. I don't know, living in Alexandria, what their paganism looked like there. But anyway, Clement was a convert to Christianity at a young age, and that becomes important in light of the coming persecution, which was focused not on people who had been born Christians, but on people who had converted to Christianity. Rome, in several points, tried to stop the spread of Christianity by saying, if you were born a Christian, raised a Christian, you can be a Christian. But no converts, and anybody that's converted to Christianity, we're going to put to death or exile or put in jail or whatever. But he was a convert, and that's going to cause trouble for him later. But as he traveled around as a young man, he finally settled in Alexandria, and as it's recorded for us, as our best historians are able to discern, he became the student of a man named Pantanus. And we don't know anything about Pantanus except that he was a Christian teacher at this school, however well-developed the school was at this point. We don't know it was big, small, organized, or, or just one guy teaching out of his house. We don't know. But anyway, there's this beginning of a Christian school in Alexandria, and Clement is learning from Pantanus. Well, then Clement takes over the school, and he ends up writing three major works that we have still with us today. The first one is called the Protrepticus, which means the exhortation. And really what the exhortation is, is it's an exhortation to the pagans to become Christians. And himself having become a Christian, having been raised in a pagan home, he's got some insight and some passion for this subject. And if, if you want to read an excellent early sermon, because that's basically what it's like. It's just a, a short tract, which would be about sermon length. An excellent evangelistic sermon. Look at Clement of Alexandria's Exhortation to the Heathen. And I'll probably share a little bit of that with you here as we go along. 
Now, the second major writing that we have from Clement of Alexandria is called the Pedagogus. And Pedagogus is, is the word for a tutor or somebody who is in charge of the education of young children. Right? And so back in their world, the mom was taking care of the house. They would hire someone to come in and be the educator, the tutor of their children so they get their education. And he likens the situation of the pedagogus, the tutor, to that of Christ and God's children. So that God the Father has made us his little children, and Christ is our tutor. He's the one who's teaching us how to live. He's educating us. And so it's a great illustration, not a biblical one strictly, but a very good illustration, and it's a great work. I really like the pedagogus. And then his last one is just miscellaneous stuff, and that's why it's called the stramata, which just means miscellany. I think what we find in Clement is a person who is finding the right balance. He's living in an academic environment. He's interacting with the philosophers and the philosophy around him, but he's remaining biblical. He refutes the Gnostics. He teaches the gospel. He writes very eloquently and powerfully. And so here is a great example of how to do ministry in the university setting. Last week, we were having our homeschool co-op class here on Friday, the week before this previous Friday, and Adam Johnson came as our guest speaker to talk about the life of Francis Schaeffer and the ministry of Labrie. And, and so guys like Francis Schaeffer and Adam Johnson, that's their area. That's where they're working. They're working among the intellectuals. They're working among the universities and among the students who are being trained in the universities. And so it's good to be able to interact with those ideas and to show where those ideas are bankrupt and to show where the truth of Scripture is the solid foundation upon which to build. And, and that's kind of the parallel that we have with Clement of Alexandria. That's what he was doing in his time and place, just like faithful men are doing that in our time and place. So I appreciate that, and, and I have some admiration for him. Now, Clement is recognized as a saint in Orthodox Christianity. That's Eastern Orthodox also, in Eastern Catholicism, I, I don't even know really what the difference is between Eastern Catholicism and Western Catholicism. I thought it was all the same. And Anglicans also recognized Clement as a saint. And he was, for a, a thousand years or more, respected in the Catholic Church. But in 1586, the Pope at that time got rid of Clement as a saint because there were questions about his orthodoxy. And 1586 is an interesting time period because that's when the Counter-Reformation is going on. And so I wonder, were some of the reformers using Clement's writings, some of his teaching on the gospel to contradict the, the gospel according to Rome, the Pope? And perhaps that's what, part of the reason why they then took a second look at Clement and said, let's get rid of this guy. We don't like what he wrote. I'm not sure. I'd have to do a little bit more research on that. But I'd like to share with you some of the writings and thoughts of Clement of Alexandria because they are excellent and they've stood up well over the course of time. Now, not everything is going to be great. I read his instructor, Pedagogus in whole, and of course there's some things that are great and there's some things that are not. I'll be sharing with you mostly the things that I like. And it starts off this way in chapter 2 of book 1. Concerning our instructor, it says this, Now, O you, my children, our instructor is like his father, God, the instructor being Christ whose son he is, sinless, blameless, and with a soul devoid of sinful passions. God in the form of man, stainless, the minister of his Father's will, the Word who is God, who is in the Father, who is at the Father's right hand, and with the form of God is God. 
He is to us a spotless image. To him, we are to try with all our might to assimilate our souls. He is wholly free from human passions, wherefore also he alone is judge, because he alone is sinless. So a great statement there about the deity of Christ, the sinlessness of Christ, as well as the nearness and compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he writes very well on that. Here I want to read a little bit from chapter 3 on the philanthropy of the instructor. It says this. Philanthropy is his love for man. The Lord ministers all good and all help, both as man and as God, as God forgiving our sins, and as man training us not to sin. Man is therefore justly dear to God, since he is his workmanship. The other works of creation he made by the word of command alone, but man he framed by himself, by his own hand, and breathed into him what was peculiar to himself. Going back to the creation of man in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and the the breathing of the breath of life into man being created in his image, showing how special we are in this creation. And he says this, For wandering in life as in deep darkness, we need a guide that cannot stumble or stray. And our guide is the best. Not a blind guide, as the scripture says, leading other blind men into pits. But the word is keen-sighted and scans the recesses of the heart. Wherefore, let us regard the word, that's Jesus, as law, and his commands and counsels as the short and straight path to immortality, for all his precepts are full of persuasion, not of fear. He doesn't just threaten, but he persuades, he he reasons with us and, and helps us and teaches us. Now, Sometimes, Clement of Alexandria falls into some of the same confusion that we find in the early church concerning the relationship of baptism and salvation. So sometimes you're reading him, and it sounds like he believes in baptismal regeneration. Other times you're reading, and it sounds like he's very clear that salvation is by faith and by faith alone. So there's this close connection between faith and baptism in his thinking, and I encourage a charitable reading of some of these early church fathers like Clement of Alexandria and say that if we were able to discuss with him, if we were able to discuss our concerns, we would agree on the nature of saving faith and that he would not be a sacramentalist who believes that by a sacrament of baptism, grace is conveyed apart from faith or as a necessary ground of faith. So I want to read what he says about faith. Listen to this. He says... Well, let's start with salvation. Salvation, accordingly, is the following of Christ. You follow Christ and you're saved. For that which is in him is life. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that hears my words and believes on him that sent me has eternal life and comes not into condemnation, but has passed from death to life. Thus, believing alone and regeneration is perfection in life. For God is never weak. For as his will is work, and this is named the world, that is, God's will created the world, so also his counsel is the salvation of men. His word, his counsel, is the salvation of men. And this has been called the church, the group who are saved. He knows, therefore, whom he has called and whom he has saved, and at one at the same time he called and saved them. For ye are, says the apostle, taught of God. It is not then allowable to think of what is taught by him as being imperfect, and what is learned from him is the eternal salvation of the eternal Savior, to whom be thanks forever and ever. Amen. And he who is only regenerated, as the name necessarily indicates, is enlightened and is delivered forthwith from darkness, and on that instant receives the light. 
You see, the Gnostics, they taught that they were the enlightened ones. And these Christians who just believed in Jesus and the gospel, that they were like these unenlightened, wandering children, but they were the ones who had the true knowledge. And so they looked down on the Christians as not having their knowledge. And here, Clement is writing against the Gnostics and saying, if you're born again, then you have been regenerated and you are enlightened and you don't need anything from these Gnostics. But this is what he says about faith. Wherefore he says... He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. If then those who have believed have life, what remains beyond the possession of eternal life? If you've got eternal life, you've got what you need. You don't need those Gnostics. And he continues, Nothing is wanting to faith. That is, there's nothing lacking in faith. As it is perfect and complete in itself. If aught is wanting to it, it is not wholly perfect. But faith is not lame in any respect. Nor after our departure from this world does it make us who have believed and received without distinction the earnest of future good wait. So we don't have to wait to be saved after we leave this earth, but faith completely saves us, and when we leave this earth, we have that eternal life with God, is what he's saying there. But having in anticipation grasped by faith that which is future, after the resurrection we receive it as present, in order that that may be fulfilled which was spoken." Be it according to thy faith, which was in our sermon last week. Be it done to you according to your faith. And where faith is, there is the promise and the consummation of the promise, rest. And he goes on and and has wonderful things to say against the Gnostics and their elitism and for the simplicity of faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I really appreciate his focus on Jesus Christ and salvation in him because that was so lacking in Tertullian. It's like, yeah, what a breath of fresh air. Glad to hear the doctrines of grace being proclaimed by Clement of Alexandria. And remember that Clement, he's writing right around about 200 A.D., about 170 years after the death and resurrection of Christ. Now here's a great line I highlighted in Dard. The word himself, then, the beloved one, and our nourisher, hath shed his own blood for us to save humanity. And by him, we... Believing on God, flee to the Word. And the Word is capitalized, the Word Jesus Christ. Now, sometimes Clement does a great, well, whenever he's using Scripture, Clement does a great job. He handles Scripture very well. But Clement also, trying to fit in with the science of his day, the academic world of his day, will also argue from what they believed scientifically and he'll make illustrations from the science of his day, which, of course, has not held up very well. The way they understood science back then was pretty foolish by modern standards. And so when you're reading Clement and he starts to illustrate the truth from scientific knowledge of his day, it's like, oh, well, that's kind of lame. And this reminded me of a statement I came across. I can't remember who it was that said it, but it's a really, really good statement to keep in mind. He who weds himself to the philosophy of the world soon finds himself a widower. He who weds himself to the philosophy of the world soon finds himself a widower because the philosophy of the world is always dying. It doesn't last. God's word is eternal, but man's word, it comes and is accepted for a while and then someone else comes along with a better idea or a different idea that is accepted. And so we see that with Clement, that in some ways he's wedding his thought to the knowledge of his day and the knowledge of his day has passed away. And so that part of his writing is no longer really relevant. I remember I was talking with my pastor at the church that I grew up with and I was telling him, I still like to listen to your sermons from 30 years ago 
Because you're just teaching the Word of God. And the Word of God is eternal. It doesn't change. And you weren't teaching things that were just relevant 30 years ago, but you're teaching eternal truths, and that is a timelessness in that. And you see that with Clement when he's talking about Scripture. But you see the lack of timelessness in it when he's talking about science. Let me give you an example. Here, in one section, he says, for a suitable blending conduces to fruitfulness. So he's talking about what produces fruitfulness. But extremes are adverse and tend to sterility. So you need the right balance in order to have a fruitful environment. And he says, when the earth itself is flooded by excessive rain, the seed is swept away. While in consequence of scarcity, it is dried up. That's all good so far, right? We believe in that same knowledge of agriculture today. But when the sap is viscous, it retains the seed and makes it germinate. Some also hold the hypothesis that the seed of an animal is in substance the foam of the blood. So again, he's not saying everybody believes this, but he's saying you know, some scholars are proposing that the seed of the animal is from the foam of the blood. Now, I, I don't think that's the case. I think that's probably an incorrect understanding of how seed is formed biologically. But anyway, he's going to use it as an illustration. And he goes on and talks about how that is done. And then he makes further use of that a little bit further down when he talks about how the milk also is produced from blood. And that milk has an affinity for water. And then he's going to draw some spiritual application out of this. Just, I don't know, one example of where he talks science and it's not really as helpful. Now, he himself agrees with me that he who weds himself to the philosophy of the world soon finds himself a widower. In principle, he just doesn't always know how to properly apply that in his own writings. But he says, what is called by men an ancestral custom passes away in a moment. So we have this ancient ancestral custom, but it can pass away in a moment. But the divine guidance is a possession which abides forever. That's a great statement about the eternality and the ever-relevance of God's word. Now, one aspect of the Alexandrian school that I want to point out as a, as a pitfall, as a danger, it starts kind of small in Clement, but then it really grows to be a major problem in his successor, origin of Alexandria, and that is the concept of free will. Now, we tend to find that among philosophers, the concept of free will is something that is very potent, and philosophers tend to fight for and to believe in and to challenge and they really love the concept of free will. That's the way it was in many philosophical schools in the ancient world, and that's the way it is with many people today. And this emphasis on free will can really mess up your understanding of sin and the gospel. Now, in Clement, his emphasis on free will is, is not terrible. But when we get to origin, I'll show you how it creates some serious problems. And if you want to know more about free will, I just challenge you to do a study, a biblical study, on the will in Scripture and see whether or not free is the right word to use to describe the human will when you're just looking at it according to the biblical terminology. Look up the word free, look up the word will, see if, if those go together very well according to the teaching of the apostles. I think you'll find that they do not. Now, if you want to talk with me about free will, I'm happy to philosophize on that subject, but we've got to keep moving because we still got origin to get to. And I want to read to you also the beginning of his exhortation to the heathen. So we're still with Clement, and we were talking about his Pedagogus, his first one, that's where I was pulling out these great quotes on the gospel and faith, but now I want to read for you the introduction to his second, well actually his first, 
book that I had mentioned, his Exhortation to the Heathen, which is basically a gospel sermon. And this is how it starts, with a wonderful metaphor comparing the gospel and the work of God in salvation to a new song that has broken into the world, bringing joy in a world full of sadness and darkness. It says this, Behold the might of the new song. It has made men out of stones, men out of beasts. Those, moreover, that were as dead, not being partakers of the true life, have come to life again simply by becoming listeners to this song. It also composed the universe into melodious order and tuned the discord of the elements to harmonious arrangement. So here he's comparing the word of God to this song. And the word of God is causing us to be born again, just as the word of God is by which God has created the world, so that the whole world might become harmony. It let loose the fluid ocean, and yet has prevented it from encroaching on the land. The earth again, which has been in a state of commotion, it has established and fixed the sea as its boundary. The violence of fire it has softened by the atmosphere, the sun and the atmosphere, as the Dorian is blended with the Lydian strain, and the harsh cold of the air it has moderated by the embrace of fire, harmoniously arranging these the extreme tones of the universe. And this deathless strain, the support of the whole and the harmony of all, reaching from the center to the circumference and from the extremities to the central part, has harmonized this universal frame of things not according to Thracian music, which is like that invented by Jubal, and he's a man in the Bible, a musician, but according to the paternal counsel of God, which fired the zeal of David. And he, who is of David, and yet before him, the word of God, despising the lyre and the harp, which are but lifeless instruments, and having tuned by the Holy Spirit the universe, and especially man, who composed of body and soul, is a universe in miniature, makes melody to God on this instrument of many tones. So we are the musical instrument that the song, uh, the word of God, is producing these many tones in harmony to God. And to this instrument, I mean man, he sings accordant. For thou art my harp and pipe and temple, a harp for harmony, a pipe by reason of the spirit, a temple by reason of the word, so that the first may sound, the second breathe, and the third contain the Lord. And David the king, the harper, whom we mentioned a little above, who exhorted to the truth and dissuaded from idols, was so far from celebrating demons in song that in reality they were driven away by his music. Thus when Saul was plagued with a demon, David cured him by merely playing. A beautiful breathing instrument of music the Lord made man after his own image. And he himself also, surely, who is the supermundane wisdom. Supermundane means it's above the mundane world, the wisdom that is higher than what is ordinary. The celestial word is the all-harmonious, melodious, holy instrument of God. What then does this instrument, the word of God, the Lord, the new song, desire? He desires to open the eyes of the blind and unstop the ears of the deaf and to lead the lame or the erring to righteousness, to exhibit God to the foolish, to put a stop to corruption, to conquer death, to reconcile disobedient children to their father. The instrument of God loves mankind. The Lord pities, instructs, exhorts, admonishes, saves, shields, and of his bounty promises us the kingdom of heaven as a reward for learning. And the only advantage he reaps is that we are saved. For wickedness feeds on men's destruction, but truth, like the bee, harming nothing, delights only in the salvation of men. Isn't that great? So 
If you get tired of reading all the schlock that's out on Christian bookstores today and you want to go back to the ancient sources, pick up Clement's works and give them a read and I think you will be blessed by them. The second man that I want to talk about here today is not as favorable, and that is Origen of Alexandria. Now, Origen, he did grow up as a Christian. He had Christian parents. And so when the persecution broke out in Alexandria in 202 to 203, this would be shortly after the writings that we were just reading from Clement of Alexandria were first published, there was an empire-wide persecution against converts to Christianity. And so Clement was exiled from Alexandria during the Severian persecution. Emperor Severius, he instituted this persecution at the beginning of the 3rd century. And so Clement had to flee from Alexandria. But Origen, who had been studying in Clement's school, was free to stay because he was not a convert and there was no law against people who had grown up as Christians. And so he stays and takes over the school after it is abandoned, so to speak, by Clement. Now, Origen has an interesting nickname and uh, Origen's a very interesting fellow, uh, one of those super geniuses in history and a man of extreme discipline, extreme self-discipline. And that's why he earned the nickname of Adamantius, Adamantium is an unbreakable metal, and so he was the man of steel, more so than Stalin in the 20th century, uh, Stalin being a man of steel in his evil and severity, but Origen being a man of steel in his devotion to God and his extreme self-control and his voluminous productivity as well. So people who knew Origen looked up to him as like this superman who had extreme talent and worked extremely hard. And when you have extreme talent and you work extremely hard, it's amazing what can be done. Now, Origen Adamantius, as we said, he grew up in Alexandria. He was born around 185. So when his forebear, Clement, was writing, he was just a young guy. And in the persecution, when Origen was just 17 years old, his father was martyred during that persecution. So his father had converted to Christianity and so he was put to death. Origen's life was spared because he had been raised as a Christian. And so when his father, Leonides, was killed, that left the family of nine impoverished because part of the persecution was also to take the property of the Christians. And so you kill the dad, you take their property, that doesn't leave the wife and children in a very good spot. They didn't have insurance back then, right? No life insurance for martyrs. And so... Origen, he went to go live with a, a woman who was a wealthy woman who took him in. But we think he only stayed there a little while because he clashed with another young man who was staying at her house who was a heretic. And Origen left and went on his own as a young man. And Origen, during the persecution, he would visit the Christians in prison. He would attend the courts and plead for those who were being condemned. And yet he himself was immune to the persecution, but his fame began to spread because of his bravery and his love and his courage. In fact, the story is sent out, we don't know exactly how true it is, but it's a fun story, that when his father was going to be martyred, he wanted to go and, and be with his father and die with him. And he was getting ready to go do that, and his mom, wanting to save his life, hid his clothes. 
And so he couldn't find his clothes to go to the prison, and so he had to stay home and just write a letter to his dad. And he told his dad, be strong in the faith, don't worry about us, God will take care of us, die the martyr's death. And so he really valued the martyrdom of his father, and he longed to be a martyr himself, and he kind of gets his wish later in life. He's tortured as an old man and, and then dies shortly afterwards. And so I think that counts in God's sight as being a martyr. Now, as intelligent and as strong-willed, as faithful and serving as Origen was, there are problems with Origen. Let me tell you about his writings. Origen, according to one ancient historian, wrote about 6,000 works. And that is a lot. Adam that was here the other day, you know, he's, he's done a lot of writing in his lifetime, he's published several books. But if you're going to, in that time, in that time period, publish 6,000 works you are doing an incredible amount of labor. And that's what he did. He would teach during the day. He'd stay up almost all night studying. And he lived on a very small income. He sold his library so that he would have enough money to be able to support himself. He wouldn't be dependent upon anyone. And then he just lived as an ascetic on a very small amount that he got from selling his library. And he devoted himself to teaching scripture. And he, as a young man, taught all subjects. But he would then pass off some of the other things and he just really wanted to teach philosophy and theology and and biblical exegesis. Now, I have here with me several books that would be similar to the first book that I'm going to describe that Origen is famous for, and that is his Hexapla. Hexapla means six-fold, six things put together. And so in the Hexapla, what Origen did was he had learned Hebrew, one of the only ancient church fathers, early church fathers who read and understood Hebrew, So that was an amazing achievement. And so he put together an Old Testament in six columns. So in the first column, he would have the Hebrew text. In the second column, he would have the Hebrew in Greek characters. So just transliterating the Hebrew word to a Greek word. In the third column, he had the Septuagint, which was the translation done in Alexandria a couple of centuries earlier of the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. And then he had other versions of the Old Testament translated into Greek, Theodosius, Aquila, and Symmachus. So you've got six columns of the Hebrew, of the Old Testament in Hebrew and Greek, and then you could compare and contrast them with one another and really do a thorough study in the original text and also in the Greek of the Hebrew of the scriptures. And so this shows you the level of scholarship that he was pursuing and promoting, very different than what a pastor would have time to do. So a lot of the guys we've read have been pastors, and and they're busy with the church, they're busy with preaching and teaching and counseling and and all of that. But Origen, he's a scholar, and so he's got time to put stuff like this together, and he's got the will to do so. And so what I brought with me here, just to kind of give you some idea of of what we're talking about, here's an English Bible in four different translations. So in the first column, you've got the New King James, or the Old King James, I should say. And then you've got the New International Version. Then you've got the New Living Translation, the New American Standard. And you can compare translation to translation. It's a great way to study the Bible. And so that's what Origen was doing with the Old Testament in Hebrew and Greek. I'll pass around the Parallel Bible. They don't sell as many parallel Bibles these days now that you have Bible apps and you can just put the four columns up on your computer screen or on your phone and compare each translation with one another. And so I hardly ever use that book. I bought it and then the internet became a thing. And so I just use the internet to compare and contrast all the different versions that I want to look at. 
But I also brought with me a Hebrew-English Old Testament. So this just has two columns. On one side of the page, you've got the Hebrew. On the other side, you've got the English. Now, they didn't speak English back then. In Alexandria, Greek was their major language for the academy. And so they had Hebrew with Greek. But here is, in our time, Hebrew with English. But just two, other than the six that he had in his hexapla. So I'll pass this around if you want to take a look at a Hebrew-English side-by-side. Not only did he create the hexapla, but then he also wrote an important book called De Principis, which means On First Principles. And it's a theological, philosophical work. First principles means like the most important basic ideas. And so here's, here's what's most important for philosophy and theology. That's his De Principis. And I'll share with you a couple quotes from that if we have time. And then thirdly, he wrote homilies on every book of the Bible, or almost every book of the Bible. A homily is a sermon, fancy word for sermon. And so he wrote sermons, and he delivered them, and then they were written down, through the Old Testament, through the New Testament. We've lost a lot of them, but we still have 17 from Genesis, 13 from Exodus, 18 from Leviticus, 28 from Numbers, Joshua, Judges, just a couple from 1 Samuel, 9 of the Psalms, Isaiah have nine sermons from the other prophets, some, and Luke, 39 of his sermons from the Gospel of Luke. So it'd be interesting to compare. And then not only did he have his homilies, but then he also wrote commentaries on the Bible. Now his commentaries weren't designed like the sermon. It was designed for other scholars to be able to answer the questions that they had about the Bible in their time. And that's the same way it is today. Um, When I'm preparing a sermon, I've got some devotional commentaries that are basically just sermons that have been translated into a commentary type form. But then I've got other more academic works that are designed to deal with some of the more technical issues that you wouldn't bring out in a sermon, but that students of the Bible want to know about. So he had both of that. He had the homilies and he had the commentaries. I don't really like his commentaries. I don't like the way that he dealt with the issues. Uh, He very often was looking for the spiritual allegorizing to deal with any issues in the text, whereas I think there are better ways to deal with issues in the text than to allegorize it. And then finally, he wrote a great book on prayer, written around 235, and he's got an introduction on prayer, why prayer is needed, how it helps us, and then he ends with an exegesis of the Lord's Prayer. And uh, so that's a great way to write a book on prayer. And then he gives some details about how prayer was done in their churches and in private practice, which is also historically interesting. Now, I don't have a lot of time to share with you from Origen's book, De Prince of Peace, so I will save some of that for next time on first principles. But instead, I'd like to use my last 10 seconds to compare C.S. Lewis with Origen. When we get into this next week, you'll be able to see how Origen, he lived in this academic world and he wanted the Bible to be academically respectable. And so his goal is to kind of find what's the basic minimum of that I have to hold to. And then whatever is not a part of that, whatever is out here that's not that basic core of orthodoxy, I can play with. And I can come up with ideas that would fit in with the, the thinking of my age. And so he starts off his book, De Principis, kind of talking about, well, these are the core doctrines that I'm not going to contradict. And then these other things are areas where Christians don't all agree on, and so I'm free to kind of have my own thoughts. And that's very similar to what C.S. Lewis was attempting to do with his book on mere Christianity. Reduce Christianity to its basic essentials so that he knows where he has to be confined and where he can be free to develop his own thinking and his own thoughts. 
And it's good to be creative and to think through things, but we'll find that Origen has some thoughts that are a little too creative outside the bounds of what biblical orthodoxy would allow. So we'll save that for next time.